Welcome to another edition of On the Continent, your one-stop shop for everything to do with European football, including the Euros, obviously. I'm Dotton Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Lars Otten. In this edition, how did the world champions lose to Switzerland? And what do they intend to do about defending their title in next year's World Cup? Also, who's to blame for Germany breaking the habit of half a century by losing to England in a knockout match? The players or the coach? And jumping ahead, (laughs) jumping ahead of ourselves at least, which are the teams to beat on that yellow brick road to the Euros final? Andy, perhaps we should start to the reaction in France uh, to the team's defeat by Switzerland in what was a lot of people would have assumed was just a, a walk in the park. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> the reaction is a, is a stunned one. People are absolutely knocked sideways by it, really, um, because as, as you said, it was expected to be a fair complete. Perhaps the only place that they're more surprised about it than France is Switzerland, where people <laughs> absolutely amazed by what's happened. Um, but it, it was clear that there were a few issues. A lot of the issues that have come out since, so obviously there have been a few little interpersonal um things between the squad there was that spat earlier in the tournament between well before the the tournament actually got underway between Mbappe and and Giroud then um, on the night of the Switzerland game and something that's been analysed a lot on French television um, Veronique who's Adrian Rabiot's mum having a go at uh, Wilfried um, Kylian Mbappe's dad telling a son to wind it in and stop being so arrogant, et cetera, et cetera. None of these stories would even get the smallest smidgen of traction if France hadn't gone out, if they hadn't conceded that goal right at the end of, of, of the 90 minutes. So really, all roads lead to Didier Deschamps because uh, this was the guy who... Brought back Karen Benzema, which has been a huge success in simply statistical terms, but still the team had to work out how they would fit him back in. And I think that took up some time that it shouldn't have done um, going into the tournament and going into the group stages. Um, Then you look at um, the reconstitution of the midfield, the lack of width, the problem with fullbacks, which was partly down to injury. And because of that injury thing, everyone's already overlooked the fact that players have basically played two seasons in a row. And it looks like France's physical prep department, uh, so their fitness trainers and coaches, are going to carry the can for that. Um, And then you look at Deschamps changing the shape to a a three-man defence going into that game. Or, you know, almost a a five-man defence, bearing in mind the, the capabilities of the players used at wing-back as actual wing-backs, although bringing in Adrian Rabiot was very much an emergency measure. So I, I, I think maybe it, it could be time for Deschamps to move on after nine years. I don't think that will happen, despite the fact that Zinedine Zidane is poised. Yeah, I... I, I, I'm, I'm trying to stay composed about this. I mean, really, I, I, I struggle to understand how you end up with the team looking like that for, for, for that game. From the start, you mean? Yeah, it, it's just bizarre. It's just, if you go back, say, a couple of months ago when we were heading into this tournament, 
And we were all talking about, you know, people were making these lists. You saw them on the internet all the time about, you know, France could have two squads and they would all be great at the Euros, which is true. You know, there's so many options to choose from. So so if you, Andy, if you flew to, to France and you met Didier Deschamps at Le, Le Château de Deschamps in, 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 the, in the countryside and you had a glass of, of, of uh, he had a glass of, of Chablis and you had a green tea, of course, and you said, well, Didier, Didier, imagine we're in the future and you're going to play a last 16 game against Switzerland you know what's your team going to line up I don't think you would go ah well Andy my my petit fromage uh, we will for this game we will go avec le back 3 1, 2, 3 at the back and we will play with the wing backs with Pavard at the wing band and Adrien Rabiot uh, who has never played there before in his life it would be very good like this this is obviously not what we would have said. <laughs> and he would have, it feels like we've got would have, would have, would have, would have, in the studio. Yeah, it would have sounded less like someone from Alo Alo if he had. But I, it just baffles me that you end up like, again, with Pavard, who's not a wing back, playing wing back, and Adrian Rabio, who's never played at left back or left wing back in his career for this game. Like, how do you end up in that situation, even with a couple of injuries? And, and also, you you have the sort of Angulo Kante and Paul Pogba central duo thing when everyone knows we've gone over this year after year after year that Pogba in the central two gives you problems because he's a free spirit and he likes to wander about. And we found that out at the end. Didn't a- again, we? so so you yeah. so you change that halftime obviously because it is a disaster. Uh, oh man, it does not work. Le back trois, we cannot do this. And and, and you change the halftime and you, and you just chuck a winger on and you go full sort of four two four or whatever the hell that was. And and yeah, you get back in the game and we start to see wow, this front three it's. it's it can work. It's really good, but then when you're three, when you're three one up, you need to do something about the fact that you have this bizarro midfield with Pogba and Kante and no one to cover. And it's like it, there was a lot of weird stuff from the bench in this game. Like, See, that's probably what he thought he was doing with a couple of minutes left when it was three. Yes, Sissoko on. <laughs> it's Sissoko time. Sissoko for Griezmann though. Yeah, and that's how they, how they could have done with him during extra time when really nothing happened of all, all the excitement we had on those Monday matches very little happened in, in that extra time for, for me all the weirdness of shape and making it up on the fly and almost France creating their own problems where there were none because I think we saw from the 25 good minutes that they played against Switzerland in that second half no one else is touching that during this tournament. Mm-hmm. That must be mm-hmm. the biggest regret. The fact that if they play like that for a substantial part of the tournament, there is only one winner in, in, in the tournament. But I think for all the questions about shape, I mean, you talked about how many players they've got to pick from. They end up including Clement Langlais, who's been horribly out of form for Barcelona at the back end of the season. And funnily enough was one of the, the main protagonists and what didn't go right in the first half as well as the shape itself. Yeah, and, and the reason, the fact that they were so good, that front three together in the second half also kind of blows up any sort of argument, oh, I shouldn't have brought Benzema back. No. You can't say that because we saw it work. We saw those front three the, work the first, really well together. The first goal was magnificent. So good. The touch is, the touch is incredible. Yeah, and, and I just thought the movement and the interplay but for the... it counts for nothing. Counts for nothing, Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just... We don't, I think as a rule on this pod, we tend not to just blame the manager very often because it's kind of a lazy way out. But I think you have to look at 
some of the decisions that were made there and they're just mystifying. Now, there's stuff going around the squad. The fact that their hotel was in a roundabout, as you said, basically, uh, was not ideal. And there's been suggestions that the camp wasn't as harmonious as it was last time out. Um, But just in very simple terms, like where the, in what sort of formation the players were put onto the pitch, I think had a lot to say in this game. You see, the uh, the question that I ask, I mean, Griezmann that you mentioned earlier on, people who have seen the French team over the last few years will know that he plays every minute possible uh, because he's significant. So the idea that you take him off suggests a real big question mark about that decision, I would have thought. But apart from anything else, whatever has gone on in the camp, these are the world champions. Like Lars said, they had two first-team squads, at least, if not three, strength in depth beyond what everybody else had. Mm. And whatever else has been going on, how can you not cover that up? Because we didn't see any of this these issues that you talk about in the group stages. They were there in the group stages. We didn't see them in the group stages. I, I, I think the, the, the funny thing is, is that history is kind of written by the winners, isn't it? And there were a few of these little things at World Cup 2018 like you know we think about a lot's been talked about about the difference between Pogba for France and Pogba for Manchester United part of that's the players around him part of that's the role but also part of it's a mindset thing because remember France had a worse group stage in terms of performance at World Cup 2018 than they did in this Euro but Pogba's teammates approached him and said to him we expect you to give a bit more we expect a little bit more buy-in, sacrifice, all those things. And Pogba took it to heart and he had a great knockout period in the in, in the 2018 World period. Cup. Oh, sorry. Yeah. In the 2018 World Cup. So when we get further down the line, I mean, I think a lot of people have thrown, at least up until the point where France were knocked out, Pogba's name in the hat as, as a player of the tournament. And I, I, I would endorse that. He was fantastic at the right moments. I think this is something that's always really important to appreciate with France, that not everyone can be the main guy. Because as Lars says, there are so many stars in there. There has to be moments where certain big players take a step back and say, Pogba's taken that step back before and said, OK, Griezmann, this is your team at the moment. And, you know, there's an understanding, I think, amongst those players and there's an understanding amongst Griezmann that, OK, this is Benzema's moment. And they hoped they would reach the point where this would be Mbappe's moment. But with Mbappe, especially with the lack of natural width in that team, he had to give a lot. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, how knackered he is, how he hasn't really had a break, how he didn't look himself, how he missed the pen, the way he walked up to the pen, all this sort of stuff. But I think the reality is he he didn't have a terrible tournament. I think he had to give a lot of himself off the ball. And that's what I saw in the, in the France matches that I went to. They had to cover that left-hand side an awful lot because there's no width over there. And you know what? Usman Dembele, who a lot of people didn't even think should be in the squad, losing him in the Hungary game I think is big because he's natural width and there's not a lot of lateral width in that squad. You know, if they had Jaden Sancho, oh my goodness. Uh, they would take him off England's hands in a heartbeat. <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt about that. And uh, Dembele did make a difference in that game that he came on against Hungary. Now, of course, you want Mbappe inside. He can do that that other creative stuff. And he did a lot of defensive work as well that went completely unnoticed. 
I think it probably took too much out of him. I think it cooked him a little bit, so he didn't really have that composure when he did get into the goal-scoring positions. And of course, now there's loads more talk about him. Well, his attitude, which I think is grossly unfair, by the way, mm. because this is a guy that I know. I think the way it's been absorbed or perceived here is a very English way of looking at things. Like, well, he he didn't win the title this year with uh, Paris Saint-Germain. Now he's missed a, a big penalty. You know, we'll see how he comes back from this. It's like, are you joking? That's what they're saying they, in France at the moment. No, this this is this is a lot of the English reaction okay. that I've said on social media. Well, what about in France? In uh, France, the, of course, there's there's question about um, his future. Um, Le Keep is saying mm. today that um, as stands, he won't be signing a contract extension with Paris Saint-Germain. He'll be running down the last year, at least as it stands at the moment. It's not thought of as a definitive decision, but obviously PSG are going to get really antsy if it goes into the last year. And I think what's interesting in terms of those contract negotiations is Leonardo, the sporting director, has been shuffled off and... Um, Nasser El Khalifi, the the president, that said, "Right, I'm going to deal with this." It's like that bit in Return of the Jedi where um, the, the Emperor is unhappy with the lack of progress, <laughs> as Darth Vader says. So, right, Nasser's on the ship now. He's going he's going to oversee the final stages, and you know, there's a there's a sense of the troops going, "All right, we'll we'll redouble our efforts." <laughs> yeah, you're bloody right. You will. Yeah. You will get him that extra sponsored car. Because, you know, it's, it's key to them. N- Nasser Al-Khalifi has said, a couple of months ago, he said, I can guarantee you that Mbappe, we're not selling him and he's not leaving for nothing. Which I thought, is, that was, I thought that was an outlandish thing for him to say because, again, not up not to you, mate. Decision. Not it's up not, to you. It's, it's like, like his decision. Harry Kane, sort of like, it'll be down to me. No, read your contract. It's not. Like, sometimes with yes. these people, they like to think they are more in charge of things than they are. But uh, going back to the international perception of Mbappe... Uh, Actually, to quickly mop that up, I think that him going into the last year of his contract at PSG is is not the big deal that everyone thinks it is. Because ultimately, if they can prove to him that they're the sporting project that he can grow with, then he'll he'll sign for them again. And maybe, actually, he does a LeBron James thing where he only signs for a couple of years and then reassesses in a couple of years. He's young enough, rich enough, and high cash enough to do that, I think. And I think it could be an interesting way to see how superstars map their career in future. But I, I do think as, as well, it's not such a big deal because at the moment, Real Madrid have had discussions with PSG saying, if he doesn't sign again this summer, what do you reckon? And they're just, well, there's, there's no amount of money that you can offer, even with a year left on his contract, to make it worth our while selling him also we have to say okay fine we'll we'll offer him a contract in january we'll see how we go but if if he either if he either renews or gets sold they have to pay monaco an extra 35 million so uh, i mean it actually they they save if he runs out of contract and, and goes but but my feeling is that still that they can they can play the clock a little bit psg and he can play the clock a little bit because there's no one really out there at the moment that has got the sporting project to convince him and has got the same money to pay him. Because you, you've always talked about, well, one has always talked about Real Madrid being the final goal. You want to go to Real Madrid in its current state? If you're paying Mbappe, you can't pay the players to go around him. So I think that's something to look at. But what I wanted to say to finish this bit on Mbappe, the, the 
English language perception that I've seen on social media and people discussing it is how is he going to come back from, you know, not winning the title and uh, missing, m- a missing a penalty? He'll, he'll get over it fine because um, he's got a great future. He's got all the money in the world. He's already won a World Cup and scored in the final in case you didn't notice. And it's just like when Antoine Griezmann missed a penalty in the 2016 Champions League final. Afterwards, there was no sense of, oh, it's going to break me. He's like, well, it happens. Players miss penalties, don't they? So there won't be any pizza, a uh, 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 pizza adverts in France. <laughs> well, anyway, let's go to France. But it is important to look ahead, though, Lars. France are still world champions. And obviously, they've got to defend that title next year. But given the way that they unraveled, for want of a better phrase, in these Euros, a lot of other teams will be sort of thinking, you know, they don't have the mystique that they had at the beginning of the Euros now, do they? But I think that would be the wrong thing to think because they still have, as we talked about those, you can still make those incredible lists of all the players they have. There's still an incredible squad here, an incredible team here. And I think if, if they're sensible, they'll look at what went wrong in this tournament, which isn't just the Switzerland game. I mean, they were a bit more wobbly in the group stage than we were expecting. Sure. Um, I think, I mean, this is a more detailed thing that perhaps the stuff we've, we've covered already, but I think arriving that Kimpembe and Varane is the best centre-half pairing they have, I'm not quite sure that's... I mean, just look at the game against Switzerland. I don't think they defended those crosses for Seferovic very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, given the reserve, deep reserves of tremendous centre-halves coming out of that country, I think you have to ask questions there. But more generally speaking, since there were stuff like the accommodation they weren't happy with and like some fractures in the squad, there's stuff that we can... It's, you can analyse this. You can go back and say, OK, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong. And you can tell the players that, listen... At the World Cup, we were all together and had a really good esprit de corps or whatever. And uh, my French isn't good. And <laughs> if we've learned anything on this episode. Um, and, and, um, and and Sheldon, listen, in, in 2018, this whole stuff was really good. And we were all together and we pulled together and we won the World Who's Cup. Who's going to be asking that and, question? And then, and then in this tournament, we didn't do any of those things, apparently. And it didn't go very well. So, so let's like learn something from that. Who, who's going to be asking the question and who's going to be saying, let's learn something from that? Who? Well, I, I, I think replacing Deschamps makes a lot of sense now, uh, given the way it went and and given how badly it was handled from, from his perspective. I, I don't see with Zidane being available, it makes total sense. I agree with you. I think it won't happen. And I think he still ends up coaching the team at World Cup 2022. <laughs> Saved! Saved! Switzerland. Switzerland are quarter-finalists at last. Well, it, this podcast isn't just about France losing to Switzerland. Uh, there was another one that put a smile on a lot of people's faces over this side of the water, uh, which is Germany uh, breaking the habit of a lifetime. They never lose against England in knockout competitions until now. Where should we begin, Lars? Ah, uh, depends on where you want to begin. So I, I kind of since he's leaving now, I, I, I kind of want to do this because last time we can do this, uh, Joachim Love is off. It's his last game, uh, so you could say it's it's bye bye Love for for Germany. Uh, <laughs> I like that. I do like and that. It, it seemed a long time as if they were addicted to love, uh, <laughs> and that it would be endless love for 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 that team. But uh, as we know. Too much love will kill you, and and this this applies to Germany. Ed, do you think Yogi turned to the squad at full time and said, "Listen, 
you give love a bad name. <laughs> I think I think maybe that. I I don't think so. He was very well liked. It was bitter. It was bittersweet for him. And even though things had gone badly, uh, people liked him a lot because that is the power of love. And uh, some of those players still <laughs> would do anything for love. Uh, so some of them would say that they still believe in a thing called love. The ones who are bad at grammar, presumably, uh, whereas other might have felt at this point that 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 uh, that that love is strange and and that they had found love in a hopeless place uh, at, at the end of it. Um, <laughs> I think the hope going into the tournament would be that they would see a more modern love, <laughs> but of course, as it turns out, <laughs> you you can't hurry love. That that doesn't work either. Um, anyway, it's, it's all over now, and uh, <laughs> and I suppose Yogi will. Go Go off now and live in some kind of love shack. Oh, I like it. Although, it, to be fair, it would have, you need to leave him alone if you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, I mean maybe if he maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe now if maybe he takes a break from the game and anyone who wants to hire him they'll they'll, they'll get a call from the agent and say no, nope, uh, I can't buy me love. I like it. You, you know um, what what I would say is the most notable <laughs> thing actually that. Obviously, a lot of England fans will have missed in the in the celebrations and the wonderful celebrations at the end of that. And wasn't it great to see those people enjoying it in Wembley? Is that um, at, at, at at the end of that, what happened at, at full time? Because the whistle goes, and there ain't no love in the heart of the city, <laughs> as Jay Z might have said, yeah, 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 or yeah, certainly yeah. in Wembley. Because we're going to be here all night. He, you know? he went he went straight off down the tunnel. Yeah. And it was Marcus Sorg, his assistant, comes on, comforts the players. And, you know, you, f- you feel that this is where they've missed a trick. The fact that Love has done an incredible job, but held on for far too long mm. because they've had diminishing returns for a, a, a long while now. And this is kind of what I feel, Lars, about Deschamps and, and France. Like, this is a logical endpoint for him, mm. just like... World Cup 2018 would have been a logical endpoint for Yogi Love, and the fact is, I think if you're in a position of power in the French French Football Federation, you look at what hasn't happened with Germany. He's had three years to fix this, and they've really they've got a load of talent, but no focus, no form. Whereas England had a plan all the way along. Germany had at least as comparable players, but. No focus, no form. And I think that's a huge issue. And then you think at the end of that, it's just off. After 15 years, there's there's no sense of, well, thanks, thanks, lads. You've you've been through it all for me and all the rest of it. Kimmich is there crying on the pitch, being looked after by Hummels and one of the assistants. Hansi Flick will not let this fly. Mm. And I think if you look at where Germany can look optimistic for the future straight away, is that Hansi Flick took over quite a similar situation at Bayern Munich. He took over a, a, a outside a transfer window, so he couldn't really change anything. And he didn't really change anything that much in, in terms of the composition of the squad anyway. He stuck to his guys, who he had faith in, like Jerome Boateng, um, like Thomas Muller, who became important again under him. And I, I don't know, maybe if Jerome Boateng gets a club and gets fit, I, I wouldn't rule out a recall for him, even though that might seem a bit weird to some people. But he is a player's coach, Hansi Flick, and he created a completely different face of Bayern with the same players. And I think if you're a Germany fan, that has got to make you think we're in a good place or we will be in a good place going into World Cup 2022. So 
I was looking at the sort of reaction in the German press to this, and it was interesting because it was kind of mixed. I mean, there's there wasn't the sort of outright hostility that you might expect because there's a lot of people are still grateful to Yogi Love and the yeah, job he's done, and he's they? still very likable. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 a joke, but it's, you're right. He probably should have gone after the last time. And, and this is a joke I've made before. There was a sense that he, you know, earned the right to pick his own departure, but then he just didn't. And mm. uh, now it's been now it's become inevitable. I think there was a phrase in 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 Kicker which I thought summed it up, which was overall the English proved to be a team which was further along in its development than Love's team. And I think that's the key here. Yeah. Because there should have been some kind of reboot. And they tried to do some sort of reboot after 2018. But then the reboot didn't boot anywhere. It was it was it was it was a boot to nowhere. And um, and then in the end they just sort of all right, all right, we we guess we just gotta bring back the old guys and just throw them all together and see if something comes out of it. And the result was a team that just looked really incoherent uh, and, and didn't look like they had a plan. And it felt very strange uh, as someone who's not, uh, you know, from this country or whatever, uh, watching an England-Germany game in which it was England who was the team who had a very clear plan and a very clear structure and every player knew what they were meant to do. Whereas Germany was the team that had like more maybe bigger names, but it was a bit of an incoherent miss. I mean, that that's tend- has tended to be the other way around Absolutely. In, in years gone past. And, and and they just looked undercooked, if you can say that, uh, about a team. Like, they didn't quite know what they were meant to do. Uh, it was also interesting to see that there were, there were calls for Musiala to be brought on earlier, which I think makes a lot of sense, given the impact he had against uh, against uh, Hungary. Uh, he's someone who's, you know, got that composure on the ball, can go past people, can, can create things. So, so you can criticise sort of individual decisions like that, but big picture, you know, it, it was a team that, that almost wasn't a team. It seems that, well, first of all, my observation is that the tournament for Germany seemed to be delivering diminishing returns from having played well against France, the German team, then they struggled against Hungary, and then finally they just couldn't cope with England uh, for all sorts of reasons. But it does seem as if um, they were like on a sliding curve downwards throughout that they were never going to get out of that um, knockout stage or you know after the first game or two if 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 they made it to the second game they wouldn't get out of that knockout yeah, stage I, I, I don't think that's unfair at all Dutton. and I, I think everyone well a, a lot of neutral observers got really hyped on the back of um, the result against Portugal in which like Germany were good but Portugal played really badly mm. really badly and played really badly in a way that suited Germany as well and suited the strengths of the way their their players were were set up but I, I I do think even in that game there were little hints as you say because Portugal still had the chances to take a draw yeah. out of that game yeah. even, even though they didn't play particularly they conceded well. a ton of chances in that game still they 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 did didn't they and I, I just I just think when you look at Flick going forward and admittedly some of this in terms of what Love went through was conditioned by player availability, et cetera, et cetera. The heart of that German team going forward will be central midfield of Goretzka, who wasn't always fit during this tournament, and Joshua Kimmich, who was used as wing-back during this tournament. So those two, as in Hansi Flick's mind, there is no doubt. Joshua Kimmich is a midfielder, and that's where he will play. Those two clicked brilliantly on the pitch for Bayern, off the pitch are good mates. Um, they raised millions for charity together during lockdown. So... They are very much the, the the new face of this Germany team going forward. And I, I agree with Lars. I think players like um, 
Serge Gnabry and Musiala as, as, as well, I think has got an enormous future for them going forward. They've got a lot of good bits in place. Now, I, I do feel they, they have the right coach. And it's unusual because normally we have a lot of coach departures. And obviously we've seen Frank de Boer go with the, the Netherlands. But you have a lot of coach departures that probably shouldn't happen as well mm. because there's there's just this huge emotional outpouring as we've seen over the last couple of weeks with the international tournaments and people make decisions on the flyer when they've just gone out and then you wonder where you're going to go next Germany they may have dropped the ball by keeping on love for a little bit too long but they had their succession plan lined up away in advance and I think that's super important for them yeah it's interesting that they replaced him almost immediately they knew mm. what was coming uh, Would do you think that they will have had the uh, not just the succession plan, but the rebuild as well lined up. Will they know, um, Lash, what, where, where they need to go now and would that have been in place for some time? So the interesting question here is that, or the interesting point there is that Fleek is going to inherit inherit some of the challenges that I think Love was struggling to come to grips with, which is the fact that he has some very, very, very good players, but there are some positions where he doesn't have a lot of great options. And I think... I think it's still not inc- not immediately obvious how this team should play with this sort of material. Naturaliser per Meccano? Yeah, because c- c- like, okay, okay, let's look at what we have here. We have some pretty quick forwards. We don't have an obvious like number nine, but we have some pretty quick forwards, right? So they think, okay, we should sit back a bit so we can counter on people. But you don't, you have a midfield who's really good on the ball. Like you don't want Cross and Kimmich and these guys to be chasing all the time. You want them on the ball. So you want to play with possession. And I was like, okay, so are we going to play with a slightly high line then? Well, you're not because look at your defense. They're all really slow. Like, I, I don't understand what the logical way of setting up this team is. It, it is kind of hard. And also there's the fullback issue. It's, and, and this is where I still, I'm more than happy to die on this hill. I will still defend Love for, for playing Kimmich at right wing back. Because who else are you going to play there? Or even at fullback, if you will. It's In like, this situation, you had no other option. It's like, because yeah. if you move him into midfield, that's fine. But what you end up doing then is dropping cross to, to put Emre Chan in at wing back, which is not a good decision or something you want to do. And uh, like Robin Gorsons had that fantastic game against Portugal and can be a good wing back, but that means continuing on with wing backs, which no one seems to like. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't, there's a lot of holes in this sort of crop of German players. Like, where are your good fullbacks at? Do you have a full center half who can run? Like, is there a number nine? It's like, no. And I don't think it's obvious how this team should be set up and how it should play. It, it, it is kind of tricky, and that's not necessarily something you solve overnight. If you can find a really speedy center half behind the sofa somewhere that would be good Mm. Uh, but I'm not sure that's happening we're going to see a different I know we're jumping ahead again but we're going to see a very different German team come the World Cup aren't we yeah I I think they're one of the contenders I I believe in Hansi Flick that that much there there are some issues to sort out absolutely and I wonder if Crows becomes not one of those issues I suspect so I I think it might be and there's quite a strong feeling in Germany that he he might call it quits off, off, off the back of this, especially if he, he wants to continue doing his stuff for, for Real Madrid. But I, I do believe they'll be in a lot better place when it comes to Qatar 2022. Shorey's driving forward. Harry Kane wants it played into him. He chooses Grealish instead. It's Grealish. It's Kane. England have a two-goal lead. Harry Kane has faced so many questions that there's no better answer than that.
there are a lot of other teams still in the competition that we really need to uh, give a shout out to. Um, we can talk about England or look at it through uh, the prism of an England succession um, towards the final at Wembley, if that's to be. Which are the teams that they need to be concerned about that might stand in their way, if we put it that way? Well, I, I guess, really, we're looking at teams from the other half of the draw, aren't we? Um, and that's without underrating the claims of uh, Denmark and, and the Czechs in in particular. But, and Ukraine. You've got to get past yeah, Ukraine yeah, first. Yeah, of course. But um, I, I think like, if, if you're talking about those three sides, Denmark and the Czechs are a, a fair bit better than Ukraine. I, I think mm. England have lucked out with the draw in, it, in, in a sense, though we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, the other half of the draw is, is, is where it's at, really. Um, because I think there are reasons to believe in Spain, Italy and Belgium. Very, very different reasons. Um, the Spain thing absolutely fascinates me because after people saying, well, Spain played the dullest football ever, et cetera, et cetera, after the first two games and they get, they get one goal in those first two games, then they score, go and score 10 in the next two. We kind of drop in that I, those people were maybe not watching the football, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree because th- this idea that Spain were having some sort of sterile possession, they were, they were creating a lot and not putting it away. Yep. Um, what's happened since, I still don't think Luis Enrique knows his best 11. No, and, but and ma- I don't know it, if I... Maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know if I don't trust you because you, you're not going to have like Martin Dubravka doing a volleyball smash into his own goal uh, in many other... That's only going to happen once. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and then Croatia was kind of a loopy game as well. Um, though, to be fair, they attacked quite well against the Croatian team that I could never really get a handle on in this tournament. They were a strange example. Again, another team that you have, there's a lot of good individuals there, but I don't understand what their plan is and what the concept is. And it just, towards the end of the Spain, they were like, oh no, it looks like we're going out. We're going to have to play better now. And so they did. And it was, I don't know, very, very strange national team that I could never make sense of. Um, and that, that was a fun game. But you're right. Spain have produced a lot of chances in all of their games, which is a good thing, I think. How much of a difference has Busquets made, in your opinion? He's been really good. And he's someone you you need to protect him a little bit because he does have sort of the turning circle of a sort of of a lorry now, and but that's fine if you have people around him who can move a bit. And and he, his passing, I, I think his, that. his passing, I think, has always been a bit underrated. So the combination of having him and Pedri offering very different but very good things, and having one extra guy in there who can run a lot. Hello, Koke. You know you're you're up for this. Like that 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 that's a pretty good and balanced midfield. I think Pedri's been fantastic. Is it fair yeah. to say that of and the way that you described it, uh, the uh, Spain being the most intriguing for you? Is it fair to say that they're the most enigmatic of the teams left in that side of the draw? Absolutely, no doubt about it. I think with Belgium and Italy, you know what you're going to get from them. Mm-hmm. With Spain, I, I, I really like if if they got knocked out by Switzerland, it wouldn't. Stay Stun me. No, I, I mean, I, I think it's like Morata has a game where he just yeah, yeah. I think they'll beat Switzerland. He is a player who could go into that game and score a hat trick, or he could go and like miss five big chances. It, it's, it's it's remarkable, really. Morata v Seferovic. What a what a head to head. That's something. Seferovic has had a decent. I mean, I know, I know. That, I mean, that was the really. I mean, we didn't. We were so focused on France, we didn't mention it. But like Seferovic scoring twice against France in who's, a tournament. Who's had 
he's had a good tournament and he had a really good season with, yeah, yeah, with yeah. Benfica. And I know people will say it's in Portugal. <laughs> yes, et they will. Et cetera, et cetera. I'm one of those people. Uh, he's, he's, he's still got to score those chances. Uh, that's true. Um, kind of. And it's the Bastost effect. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I think, but when you, when you look at Italy and Belgium, like I said, you know exactly what you're getting. With Italy, I do feel post the Austria game, I believe in them a lot more mm. because now they've got another way to win. They don't have to play amazingly to win. And Mancini's ability to affect things off the bench, and of course, part of that is the resources you've got, which are pretty good. And being able to bring Chiesa off the bench, for example, nice and fresh, I think is, is great. Um, I, I, I feel good about them. But if I had to like earmark a team in this half of the draw I would I would definitely say Belgium because what I think is remarkable about them is in any other situation I think any other team you take out two players like De Bruyne and Eden Hazard and you think oh they're, they're stuffed now I, I don't feel that about them at all you really? know yeah they, they they showed they could cope without them at the beginning of the tournament I still think they've they've got a few issues, even though they've defended really, really well against Portugal. And the, the defence has never been as bad as, as anyone said. I think Witzel in front of it helps, despite the fact that he's a very surprised pick. I, that you rupture an Achilles tendon and then come back for a major tournament is just unprecedented, mm. especially for a player in his, his, his 30s. Um, but I just do think that so much of it is around the fact that they have maybe the best goalkeeper in the competition in Courtois, probably the best centre-forward in the competition in Lukaku, which I think is really convincing. And we if talk they about, use him as a centre-forward rather than you know tracking back and everything else that he does. Well, that, that, that's it. He's such a multifaceted player, isn't he? But I just think as, as well, the thing with Belgium is we talked about Italy finding a different way to win. I think Belgium have already shown us they've got several different ways to win. And obviously, the way to get under Belgian skin this week is to say oh it's really great the way you beat Portugal which is exactly the way France beat you in the 2018 <laughs> World Cup which, which they're not happy about at, at, at all but this is the thing though that's what I want to drop in about Belgium I hear what you're saying and I don't necessarily disagree and I think the defence you know held up better against Portugal than I thought they would uh, but they played two games against strong opponents here against Denmark and against Portugal and they won both, yes, but they've been outshot quite dramatically in both. Yeah, totally. I mean, Denmark had 22 shots to Belgium six. Portugal had 24 to Belgium six. Mm. I don't know how many games you can continue like giving up that many chances and, and getting away with it. It does help that you have a very high quality caliber of player going forward. Uh, and, and you, you know... If you have De Bruyne playmaking behind Romelu Lukaku, then you're going to hurt anyone you play yeah. against. It's fine, we get it. But can you keep giving up that many chances? And that when now you're playing against Italy, you have slightly more potent forwards than certainly Denmark do? I, I know you'll have an XG answer for me here. I'm hoping you'll have an XG answer for me here. The thing that struck me about that Belgium-Portugal game, um, Portugal have been there before in terms of standing after a knockout match in a competition and saying we 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 were better than them and we deserved to win, but we didn't. Like Courtois made some good saves. I never really felt like he was massively under siege. I think that you could say that the goalkeeper had a good game and the defenders played very well as well. And they defended quite well as a as, as a unit. And they there was a lot of that in which Portugal were really piling it on them. And they still managed to keep arm's length. Yeah, I think some of those. I, have, I haven't checked the XG, but 
from memory, I think 14 of the shots were from outside the box. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there were some frustrated hoofs among those 20-something yeah. shots from Portugal. That is true. How, how many of those were from Bruno Fernandes, for wonder? <laughs> well, that's a Actually, what? Well, yeah. well, that's a good point to make because uh, Portugal uh, delayed bringing on arguably their best player. Mm. And um, Renato Sanchez... The word arguably is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Well, well... Are we talking about Joao Felix or are we talking about Bruno Fernandes? <laughs> no, Joao Felix was a great player as well and Renato Sanchez great player as well but they took one off and put another one on if you like equalised each other to a certain extent but when you talk about Belgium not not suffering from having their or two of their arguably best players well certainly one of them their best player yeah um I think Eden Hazard, as we saw with Real Madrid, he's not the same Eden Hazard. So he's not quite contributed in the way that he would have done Absolutely. Eden Hazard from Chelsea. But when when uh, Kevin De Bruyne went off with this injury, and we, it remains to be seen whether he'll be able to play again, he didn't look too happy. And I, no. I think the, the concern was evident around the camp, you know, uh, amongst the coach and everything. Italy, on the other hand, who have lost some of their best players before. They seem to be the happiest going back on the field, nevertheless. That's the one thing I would say, when you look at the body language, you felt uh, Italy, they're enjoying their football despite not having all their players there. It feels competitive and they, they, they all feel implicated, don't they? Yeah, and I think because that's something Mancini has made a point of, you know, it's all about the squad and everyone's involved. Mm. And people were talking to you about that and I was like, mm, but... Are they though? Because in the group stage, it was a pretty clear, you know, who was the first eleven and who weren't. But that's did why you it, play against Wales? If you did, you're not first choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then that's why the the, the Austria point. game, I think, was so significant. A lot of people got caught up in the fact that yeah, they they looked a bit less exciting, a bit a bit more like old Italy in the second half. I, I wonder if that was just sort of the reality of the situation that sort of it, it just dawned on them that for all the good work we've done, we are now just one hoof to uh, on Outwich away from it all going terribly wrong, and maybe that sort of <laughs> made them a bit anxious but but I thought again like Andy that game also ultimately gave me a lot more faith in their ability to go all the way here because they got solutions off the bench you you had Chiesa who comes on and scores a great goal you have Locatelli who's sort of restored to the lineup and, and comes in plays very well uh, you have or restored to the lineup comes in off the bench and, and you have Belotti who has his limitations but he puts a good shift in he bumps into people and he runs around a lot and you had like people fr- from bench who makes you know really good contributions which I think which I think is meaningful. I think it's very significant when we look at their chances going forward. And I I still think, I'm going to keep saying this until it becomes true or you won't have me on anymore. I still think you can, <laughs> you can get at this sort of Belgium defence. Like, I know they did okay against Portugal, yes. Uh, but against a team that has a more sort of coherent game plan going forward, I think they might still be exposed and... Uh, there aren't that many games left in which I can be wrong about that. So I mean, I can, I can still say, I'm going to keep saying it. It's speed, isn't it? That's what's going to test that defence. It's speed. Proper speed. Yeah. For, I, fortunately, Lukaku plays for them rather than yeah. against well, them. Where's, I mean, where's, that's probably why they're so good. They, well, they're they're just, the, the Belgian defence think, oh, at least we're not playing him. <laughs> they can negate that by sitting back. But against Italy, that means you have sort of Insigne and either Berardi or Chiesa whipping yeah. in long shots from the corner of the box all day, which is not what you want. That's it. I, I, I guess if, you, if you're making a case for Italy, 
the, the wing backs of the case, aren't, aren't they? Because um, Tom Meunier has recovered a bit from his bad season at, yeah. at Dortmund. M- but, M- Mounier, but still, Munier versus sort of rampaging Spinazzola and Insignia down that flank is it's, like, di- it's a different. It's like Dortmund fans. Well, it sounds like it's an anxiety dream for a Dortmund fan. Like, oh no, no, <laughs> nine. This is not good. Exactly. I think we've had enough love for one day. <laughs> So it's that time, uh, again, you're spoilt for choice here. Too many options, in my view, of great games to look forward to, uh, not least this weekend. Where will you go with your Games of the Week recommendation last first? Well, we did just talk about it, but like, I can't get away from Italy v Belgium just because there's still that little caveat with Belgium, and I do think they were tested more against Austria, but... You can still say that under this great run under Mancini, like how many good teams have they actually come up against? They're certainly coming up against a good team now. And we'll see more like what happens when that very likable and technically good midfield maybe has to battle a little bit more uh, against guys like Witzel and uh, Tielemans, maybe Dendonk, Dendonk probably doesn't play, but Tielemans and Witzel in the midfield. Uh, anyway, it's a, be- it's a bigger test for them. And um, I I just think that's that's the most interesting matchup. <laughs> Well, arguably, that match, though, um, they're both coming up against a great team. Yes, absolutely. And um, I I think it's going to be terrific. But even if I'd have gone first, I would have picked Switzerland versus Spain, which I am going to pick. Um, Because, as I said earlier, um, I can't wait to see Spain play again. I can't wait to see what sort of chaos is going to ensue (laughs) after those two games. I think the brilliant thing about this and the brilliant thing about the tournament in general and the brilliant thing, I guess, about sport in general, it's so hard to predict what's happening at the moment. Everything's like quite chaotic. And I'm looking forward to embracing that. Of course, I'm also looking forward to the fact that because it's in St. Petersburg, you'll get some tremendous shots of the stadium on the water. I'm hoping that at least someone who's broadcasting there, even if like the BBC or ITV only do it on a Zoom backdrop, I hope they get the Zoom backdrop of St. Petersburg. And sometimes you've had people broadcasting from St. Petersburg where they're on a boat, like next oh, to the stadium. I definitely nice. want to see that. That's I mean, nice. that would be some funky Zoom backdrop, but you know, let's make it happen. Do you think, um, just on this match, do you think that because of the way that Switzerland beat France, that Spain will take Switzerland more seriously than they would otherwise have done? I'm just asking. I I think they have to take them seriously. Anyway, Switzerland are normally quite difficult to break and I think it won't change Spain's approach one little bit because, like I said, they're just such an incredible box of frogs at the moment. This was a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creative Network.